Amos chapter 1, we will start at verse 3 this morning and read through chapter 2, verse 3. Now hear God's word. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants of the valley of Avon, and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden. And the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Geza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Teman and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds, with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. And their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for the three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kirioth, and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting, and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades. God's word stands forever. Will you pray with me today as we come and again consider this portion of God's word together? Our God and our Father, we come before your word, again acknowledging the sobering nature of of portions of your word like this. And we ask, Lord, that you would be with us, that you would help us to understand. Holy Spirit, illuminate the meaning of the words of God to us today and impress them upon our hearts and help them to form the thinking of our minds and to transform the way of our lives according to your justice, according to your truth, according to your glory. Father, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts upon your holy word this day be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
If you're going to characterize this passage that we're going to look at together here today in Amos chapter 1 and 2 with a single word, that word would be justice. Justice. This passage is all about justice as the Most High Lord God Almighty defines justice. It's been fascinating to me to observe how in our world lately everybody is becoming more and more interested and consumed with the idea of justice, aren't they? You've noticed this with me, I'm sure, right? Just how popular it's become in our culture, how, how trendy it's become, how vogue it's become for everyone to be obsessed about the concept of justice in our world. It's very hip nowadays. It's very trendy. It's very cool for everyone to, to fashion themselves as a, as a super courageous defender of justice and to take a, a very bold stand, very bravely, very publicly, on social media against whatever perceived injustices happen to be trending the most positively, right? On those, those bastions of righteousness like, like Twitter and Instagram in this world. Yes, I'm being facetious here, right? Everybody wants justice, don't they? Everybody wants to take a stand for what's right and what's wrong in this world. Everybody wants to be seen and perceived by others as being kind of a, a cultural hero for taking a stand and signaling their virtue to the watching world about whatever cause is popular today, the sort of soup du jour today. And what's fascinating to me is that that's true even though many people who are signaling their virtue the most noticeably and taking the strongest and the most public of, of stands against what they're identifying as injustice in our world, how many of them are at the same time deniers of God and deniers of the Word of God? I think that's interesting, right? Because, of course... Without God reigning sovereignly over the whole earth, and without God revealing in his word an absolute standard of what is right and what is wrong for every one of us in creation, then if, if God isn't there and if his word isn't there, then what basis is there for people to even define what is just, what is right, what is unjust, what is wrong in this world? And yet one of the most common denominators of, of what makes up human nature is this universal and collective commitment that we all have to some concept of justice, right? It's one of the most prominent evidences that we are created in the image of God, that we care about what's right and wrong. Even if people are going to deny God and deny that we're made in his image, they care about justice. They care about right and wrong. The problem is that in rejecting God as our maker and our Lord and in suppressing his truth in unrighteousness, human beings on the one hand are demanding justice, but on the other hand, they have, they have untethered themselves from any objective basis to determine exactly what justice is. And so the definition just keeps on changing. 
and every generation or so, everyone challenges the definitions of right and wrong that the generations before them held and, and critiques those old definitions as being silly and out of touch and obsolete and not nearly progressive enough. And they end up fighting with no less resolve than the past generations for very, very different causes in the world. And so now, 21st century America, we find ourselves in this bizarre situation where people are passionately consumed with justice while defending things that are actually horribly unjust. We find ourselves in this bizarre situation where people are consumed with what they'll call the medical rights of women to the degree that they completely deny the basic right of life to the most fragile of human beings, which, as we've talked about even this morning, is babies in their mother's wombs. They'll defend what they've defined unilaterally, apart from God's word, untethered from his divine revelation, They'll defend this self-defined right and at the same time and by doing it deny unborn children their rights of life, their God-given rights of life. So as bizarre as all of this is, as, as reprehensible as all of this is, and it's becoming more and more so all the time, it's really not surprising if we have any kind of familiarity with what God reveals in his word. This collective demand for justice that comes from our being made in the image of God, but that has become twisted, that has become perverted, so that more and more people are justifying injustice, this is exactly what fallen sinful human beings do. According to God, in rebellion against him, in suppression of his truth, in exchanging his truth for lies, in doing what's right in their own eyes, and in untethering their God-given consciences from the moral standards, the ethical standards that God reveals in his word. And he doesn't just reveal the standards of justice that are true for all human beings for all time in his word. He also reveals them within us, right? He says this in Romans chapter 2, for example, that he has written his law on every single human heart so that even people who have never read his word are without excuse for turning away from the law of God that's written within them and choosing to live according to their own desires instead. And the more that people do that, the more twisted their definitions of justice and injustice, right and wrong, good and evil, the more twisted they become. And the same thing is true not just of individual people, but then of the societies that those people make up and the nations that those societies become, right? So this bizarre situation that we find ourselves here in in America in 2023 is the result, it didn't just happen all at once, it's the result of long years and generations of, of straying further and further and further from God's own unchanging objective standards and definitions. And that's nothing new, right? We're not the first 
nation to do that, to wander and to stray. And this is how things have been since the fall of man in the garden. Before long, in Genesis chapter 6, after Adam and Eve's initial fall, the whole world was filled with every kind of wickedness. And God said that every intention and inclination of the thoughts and the hearts of men was only evil all the time. And that is what precipitated God's judgment against the world in the great flood. And then what? Well, after the flood, of course, nothing changed. The descendants of Noah continued to go astray, to deviate further and further from the God in whose image they were made. The nations of the world plummeted further and further into unrighteousness, even though they all thought that they were pursuing justice. But they were only just in their own sight not in the sight of God, who is the judge of the whole earth. All of this is the message of Amos chapter 1. In spite of their denial of God and their rejection of him, he stands as the holy judge of the whole earth over all the nations. And even though, as we saw last week in introducing this book, even though God is divinely patient, he doesn't lash out impulsively. Remember, he he waits to enact justice against the nations until the third transgression and the fourth, as he repeats over and over here in chapter 1. Even though he's very, very patient, his patience here in Amos 1 has come to an end. And his purposes of judgment against these nations are proclaimed and are fully justified. And in all of this that we're going to look at today, we learn several key ways that these nations in particular have strayed from God's foundational definitions of justice. And as we look at them and categorize them in our mind and understand what undergirded all of their wicked ways, that's going to help shine a light for us on the nations of the world still today as history repeats itself. And the nations in our generation continue to shake their fists against God in the same kinds of ways and take their stand against true justice in the same kinds of ways that God identifies here in the Old Testament. So this passage, where God has these Gentile nations in his sights, it falls out into three primary sections. And in each of the sections, God is addressing two nations and identifying the specific things that they're guilty of. And as we'll see, it's not just some random selection of wrongdoings. The things that God deals with here aren't just sort of a, a, a haphazard set of charges that he, that he just picks out among many. What God does here is to shine the light on a very carefully selected group of offenses that become more and more severe as we go. And again, all of this is going to shed a lot of light on why exactly things tend to go so wrong in our world and on how God's people need to stand in very specific ways for what God says and what God defines 
as right and true and just and good in this world. And he tells us what will happen to those societies and nations who continue to rebel against him and against that standard that he sets. So, in the first section here, verses 1 through 8 of Hosea chapter 1, God, the judge of the whole world, the ultimate determiner of ultimate truth and right and wrong for all human beings for all time, God speaks against Damascus and Gaza. That's the people of Syria and the Philistine people. Those were key cities to those nations. And God says against Damascus, this is the the charge that he levels against the Syrians in verse 3, they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. And then look down in verse 6 where he speaks against Gaza and says, they carried into exile a whole people in order to deliver them up to Edom. And then in verses 4 and 5, God renders this divine sentencing against Damascus. I will send fire upon the house of Haziel, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. And I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to fear. It's not hard to understand what God is saying there, is it? As they have done, so shall it be done to them. Now, according to 2 Kings chapter 13, Haziel, who's identified here, was the king of Syria And Ben-Hadad was his son who ascended to the throne in Syria after Haziel died. And during their reigns as kings in Syria, Haziel and Ben-Hadad waged war against the northern kingdom of Israel, against God's people time and time again in a long succession of military campaigns where they took greater and greater portions of of Israel's land away from them, the land that God had given. But see, it wasn't just that Syria fought against Israel that brings God's justice down on them now. It wasn't the fighting, it was the way that they fought. They didn't just conquer Israel's territory. In doing that, they committed grave human atrocities. For Syria, the governing ethical principle, their idea of what right and wrong and justice and injustice was, which undergirded all of their political ambitions, the guiding principle was simply this, that the ends justify the means no matter how extreme the means are. We'll do whatever we want to do to get whatever we want. Exceptional circumstances justify exceptional measures to the degree that whatever traditional limitations other people have out there on what should and shouldn't be done, we're just going to throw that all out the window and do whatever we want. That's how Syria did business. But the sovereign God didn't agree with where Syria drew their moral and ethical boundaries and lines. And the bottom line in God's divine judgment was 
that the fundamental issue that Syria was guilty of, that he identifies here in Hosea 1, was that they went so far as to, to evaluate the, the worth of people and treat them as things, not as humans made in God's image. They treated people like things. Haziel is described here as threshing Gilead. That's the imagery. That's the metaphor that God uses to picture the way that the Syrians dealt with their enemies. Threshing was what farmers did with the wheat stalks that they harvested out of the the wheat fields in order to separate the top part where the grain was, which was used for making flour and bread and food. They had to separate that that grain from the husk and from the straw, which was all useless. And in order to separate the grain from the husk, you had to treat the wheat very, very violently. And the process involved beating the wheat stalks repeatedly over and over and using metal tools to hack at them over and over until all of the husks and the chaff were stripped away and all of the grain was separated so that it could be sold in the marketplace and turned into food. So that's what farmers do. That's what threshing is. It's what a farmer does to the wheat in order to extract profit from it. And God says that's exactly what Haziel did. That's exactly what the Syrians did to the Israelites in Gilead. He treated people violently, And he treated people as things to be profited from. And he used violent means to strip them of their humanity, of their resistance, of their strength, of their dignity, in order to maximize whatever profit he could extract from them. In verse 6, speaking to Gaza, to the Philistines, God says that they carried a whole people into exile and delivered them up, sold them to Edom. Those crimes against humanity are recorded in 2 Chronicles 28. The Philistines raided all of the cities of the southern kingdom of Judah and then sold the inhabitants of Judah into slavery. And neither the Syrians to the north nor the Philistines to the south Neither of them were discriminating whatsoever as to who they took as things, as property, and sold on the slave markets. From elderly people to infants, they would just, they'd sell them in order to profit from them. Men, women, single or married, didn't matter. Rich or poor, didn't matter. The only question they asked was, will they sell and what can I get for them? Treating image-bearing human beings as things, as stuff to be bought and sold. Now, the same thing was true, wasn't it, of our country in the days before slavery was abolished. Because of a simple difference in the color of certain human beings' skin, Image-bearing human beings were treated as physical property, as things, as chattel, sold to the highest bidder. And then whoever bought them was free to do with them whatever they pleased. Same thing was true in Europe 
during the days of World War II and the Holocaust, wasn't it? Jewish people and others, too, who fell short of the Aryan ideal were declared by the Nazis to be the German word Untermenschen, literally subhumans. That's what they called them, inferior beings, stuff, things of so little value that in their minds, society was most profited by their disposal, even more than subjugating them into forced labor. We'll be better off if we just do away with them. So whether it's the enslavement of people, like in Gaza, like in early America, or the disposal of people, like in Syria and in Europe in World War II, or the human trafficking of women and children that goes on still all throughout the world in the 21st century today, including in America, where people are bought and sold as objects to be used for other people's sick and depraved pleasure. Or the abortion industry that thrives in America and all around the world where infant humans are deemed untermenschen, subhumans, stuff, things to be disposed of as routinely as the garbage. At the heart of all of that is this wicked, godless, depraved impulse of human beings to treat other human beings as things. And the failure, secondly, identified in this passage, the failure to prioritize human life and human well-being above profit, above money, above gain in, in an earthly sense. These are the crimes. These are the injustices at the bottom that God is identifying here. You've turned people into things, and you've valued money and profit and commercial gain more than human life. Those are the horrific injustices that lay at the heart of the crimes of the Syrians and the Philistines during Old Testament times, and they continue to lie at the heart of all kinds of wretched inhumanity all around the world, throughout history, still in our time, in our land, because, because according to our own standards, we have defined the value of human life contrary to what God himself defines it. And God hates it. God despises it. God loathes people treating other people like things. God despises the prioritization of profit over the value of human life because he is the author of life, because he alone has the authority over life and death, because he is the one who made human life in his own image according to his own likeness. He's the one who intricately weaves every single human life together in the womb of his or her mother, like David says there in Psalm 139. Human life is precious to God above any other form of his creation. And yet we treat it just like stuff to be bought or sold or disposed of. So anyone who devalues what God prizes the most 
is accountable to him, will answer to him. And none are exempt. Not Syria, not Gaza, not East Germany, not America. When God said that he would torch Damascus for their sins against humanity in verse 4, that he would break down the defensive gates of their city so that they could be invaded and cut off their inhabitants, he meant it, and he did it. He brought that nation to ruin, not because he's a big, mean, capricious, unkind God, but because for generations he tolerated the worst kinds of offenses against his glory in the dehumanization of image-bearing people over and over and over again. When God said in verse 7 that he was going to rain down fire against the wall of Gaza, cut the Philistines off from the land, bring their lives to an end, he meant it. And he did it. That's a civilization that doesn't exist and hasn't for a long time. And all societies and peoples and nations of this world who in any way do this kind of thing and treat people as things and, 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 and estimate the value of human life relative to some kind of profit that they can extract from them and who dare to sell and trade in human lives and to destroy and dispose of human lives, not for the sake of any kind of real justice, but for the sake of convenience, for the sake of money, for the sake of personal freedom and ambition, those people will answer to God, who is the author of life and the maker of every human being and who is the judge of the whole world, whether the nations want to admit that or not. Now, verses 9 through 12. Again, here of Amos chapter 1, the second section, God sets his sights on two more people groups, the people of Tyre, that's the Phoenicians, and the people of Edom. And... He's not condemning them for something fundamentally different from what Syria and the Philistines were guilty of and judged for. Tyre and Edom have done exactly the same thing. They've devalued human life. They've treated people like things. But here now, God kind of zooms in his focus and gets a little more particular and focuses in on sins and crimes that were even more personal. Notice the use in verses 9 through 12, of the word brother in this section and in these indictments against the Phoenicians and the Edomites. Verse 9, God condemns Tyre for the same sin as Gaza, right? They delivered up a whole people to Edom, chattel slavery, human trafficking, the whole works, reprehensible to God. And then God adds to that charge this, they did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. And against Edom themselves, God says in verse 11, he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. You see the progression in God's mind? Because he and he alone is the author of life, the creator of every single human life, in his image as his most precious, intricately woven handiwork, there are fundamental obligations that every human being has, all and every one of us, towards our fellow human being. That's the substance of God's case 
against all these nations here in chapter 1. But now, to these basic human obligations that our common humanity demands of us all, God adds the bond of brotherhood. There's various kinds of brotherhood in this world. Various forms of, of particularly close human relationships, right? There are blood relations within families. And there are close relations that are formed and forged through promises to one another, through covenants with one another. And that's the essence of, of God's complaint here against Tyre in verse 9. Not only have they mistreated their fellow man, they've done it to people who they've pledged their word to, who have trusted them. They've violated the trust at the expense of their fellow man, their brother. They've broken promises. They've violated oaths. They've abandoned covenants. So both Gaza and Tyre are, are neck deep in the godless, wicked industry of trafficking in human life. Both of them had sold whole populations into slavery to the Edomites. But Tyre, in its slave trading, had acted in breach of treaty obligations. They had given their word to other cities, to other peoples. If you need us, we'll be here for you. And then they took advantage of that trust and broke their word. All, of course, for the sake of selfish, fleshly, wicked, sinful profit and gain at the expense of other people. They hung them out to dry. So, obviously, sometimes, let's think about promises here. Obviously, sometimes, in service to true justice and to truth, as God himself defines it in his word, sometimes the bonds of a promise have to be broken. Sometimes, in order to honor God's definition of right and wrong, an oath needs to be abandoned sometimes because sometimes promises are made in ignorance or in foolishness in the absence of important information about what's going to happen in the future and so sometimes depending on the way that things go keeping the promise would result in a greater injustice than breaking it one scholar wrote some promises can only be honored by repenting of them Think about this. During the initial rise of the National Socialist Party in Germany, the Nazis, a lot of people swore oaths of faithfulness to the Nazi Party, only to come to realize much, much later what kind of links they would go, what kind of atrocities they would have to commit and participate in in order to keep those oaths. And so certain party members broke their promise, broke their oath to the party in service of the greater good, right? People like Klaus von Stauffenberg or Oskar Schindler very famously stood against their promised oaths in order to defend human life. Rightly so. Only a fanatic would insist on keeping his party oath when it meant what they were doing. But see, 
here it's the opposite that Tyre was guilty of. Here the oaths were made for the mutual protection of both parties, the mutual benefit of both parties. So somebody threatens you, I promise I've got your back, that kind of an oath. It was meant, it was taken in order to preserve the good of the other, even at the expense of self. Even if it was going to cost me something, I will come to your aid. Like the, like the NATO alliance, right? Binding member nations to mutually aid one another and defend one another, even if it's going to cost them on the battlefield. But here, as soon as the Phoenicians decided that personally they would profit and benefit more by breaking their word than by keeping it, as soon as it was more to their advantage to throw their brother under the bus than to defend him, then they were eager to do that. All for the sake of their selfish greed. And so in this indictment against Tyre, God is condemning not just the devaluation of human life, but their unfaithfulness to their word and to their promises. He's condemning the extent to which they would go to violate the trust that other people had put in them in order to take advantage of that trust and bring harm on their brothers for their own profit. And so God promises to avenge that. And historically he did. In verse 11, he addresses Edom itself. Edom's especially up to their necks here. He he implicates them for a second kind of violation against brotherliness. Already twice, Edom has been named as, as the purchasers of human slaves. The beneficiaries of human trafficking from Gaza and Tyre. Now God singles them out for a, a whole other kind of sin because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. That's a, that's a full step beyond even what Tyre did, right? Tyre turned their back on their brothers. The Edomites stood in their face and put them to the sword. Without pity, face to face. And who was Edom? Who were the Edomites in the Old Testament? They were the descendants of Esau. Esau was the older brother of Jacob. They were the sons of Isaac, the promised child of Abraham and Sarah. Esau was the one that Jacob took advantage of, remember? Jacob talked Esau into selling him his birthright for a pot of stew when Esau was weak and hungry. And then Jacob tricked his father, Isaac. He lied to him in order to extort the birthright that was rightfully Esau's for himself. And it became that it was the descendants of Jacob who were blessed by God as the chosen nation of Israel, while the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, were not. And so Edom, <laughs> Edom was bitter against his brother Israel. They had a long-standing gripe with Israel. And that played out in years and years and years of long-standing antagonism and violence against the people of God. Verse 11 at the end there says, His anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. This is the sin in the heart of the Edomites. They harbored a horrific grudge and hatred against Israel. 
And all of that came to a head many years later when the fall of Jerusalem occurred at the hands of the Babylonians. And the Edomites cheered. Lay it bare, lay it bare, tear it down to its foundations, they shouted with glee as they watched the Babylonians come and thrash on Jerusalem. They couldn't have been happier to see it fall. And that hatred that boiled over, that had been festering for generations. It had been, it had been, they'd been stoking the flames of it so that it wouldn't go out. And that was what was constantly being manifested in spitefulness and violence against Israel, against their brother. And so, see, now it's this stubborn refusal to forgive and to love and to be gracious and to repent of anger. It's this insistence on harboring anger and vengeance that God despises. That's something we can all learn from, isn't it? Are we people of our word? Are we people whose word and promise matters to us more than our own selfish ambitions? Are we people who live according to the example of Christ and do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves? Is that us? Because that's how God has been towards us in Jesus Christ. Came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life up for us on the cross? Is that the kind of commitment that we have to the good and the benefit of one another, our fellow man, even if it would cost us? And in light of this condemnation of Edom, are we people who are slow to anger with one another and quick to forgive because we have been forgiven much by God? Or are we more like Edom, who refused to forgive, who, who harbored this bitterness and this anger and this hatred towards the children of Jacob for generations and generations? They protected it. They guarded their wrath so that it wouldn't be forgotten. They passed it on to their children for generations so that it wouldn't fade over the years. And it became like a poison in their minds. And in their souls for years and decades and centuries, ask yourself, is there any of that kind of thing in your heart? Does any of that kind of poison course through your mind or your soul? Do you have anger and bitterness that you've harbored that you're, you're not going to let go of? Do you allow old scores to fester perpetually inside of you? Well, people who do that have zero interest in forgiveness. But if we've truly been forgiven by God, then Colossians 3.13 says we must be people who give forgiveness to one another. It's a fundamental aspect, see, of what it means to be human. It's a fundamental aspect of what it means to be made in the image of God, that we would love as God loves that we would be slow to anger as he is, quick to forgive as he is. Quick to, quick to lay down our rights and sacrifice for the benefit of others and not try to extract from them some benefit for ourselves. So, all of these things so far lie at the core of what true justice and humanity is in this world according to God's own definitions. 
the recognition that people are not just things, that they are pricelessly valuable above all other aspects of creation and that the valuation of human life has to especially transcend any kind of personal or, or, or commercial profit. And the commitment to our word in protecting and providing for our fellow man even when it costs us something. And an eagerness to extend grace and unconditional love and forgiveness towards our fellow man because the holy God has been so unconditionally kind and gracious towards us. In all of these ways, the people of Damascus and Gaza and Tyre and Edom had fallen short and failed and dishonored the God of heaven and and, and they'd done it by devaluing and dishonoring and destroying the lives that God had made in his image, their fellow man, for the sake of their own sinful gain. And so they're going to answer to God himself because it is to God alone that vengeance belongs. And that brings us to the very end here, the third section of this passage, God's word against the Ammonites and against the Moabites. In verse 13 of chapter 1 through verse 3 of chapter 2. I have no idea why whoever put the beginning of chapter 2 where they did put it there. It should go down after verse 3, but that's what happened. It's not inspired. It's not infallible. But these sections all go together. And again, here, God hones his focus. God exposes not just crimes against humanity in general, but another level of inhumanity and cruelty altogether. God really brings it to a point here. And, and as a word of warning, you can, you can see it for yourself right there in the verses. God gets graphic in his indictments here because the sin got graphic. Here God pulls no punches. Verse 13, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their borders. This is the extent to which they would go in order to have more property, more land. Here's the principle that God is so upset with. True justice, God insists through Amos, True justice that has to govern all human relationships has to especially be concerned more than anything with those human beings and those human lives that are the most vulnerable among us, that are the most defenseless among us, that stand in the greatest need of protection and defense and care. And when you deny those people the human rights that God assigns to them, God is especially enraged. This is a fundamental aspect of God-defined justice and true humanity. True, he, what it means to truly be human. That in God's image, justice will be most profoundly expressed where the most helpless among us stand in the greatest need and their helplessness, their fragility, their tininess should elicit the most compassion and tenderness 
and kindness from us. But the Ammonites had gone so far astray from the image of God in their own lives. Sinful greed and selfish ambition had come to rule their hearts so much that any sense of human dignity had just been extinguished. Any ounce of compassion for the littlest and the most frail and vulnerable and needy had just been smothered by fleshly lust and greed and pride. And that's the fourth sin that finally triggers God's wrath against the Ammonites for being so eager to expand their political borders and enrich their own lives that they would slaughter not just the innocents, but the infants. And in, in verses 14 and 15, it seems to me that God dwells even more severely on his pronouncements of judgment against the Ammonites than he did against the other four guilty nations so far. He, he talks about a battle cry of enemies that are going to come against Rabbah, but he also seems to say that the forces of nature themselves are going to come against the Ammonites, right? Whirlwinds and tempests. The whole creation's going to rise up against you, God's saying, because you have cut severely against the created order that I have made. And you have become inhumane to the worst possible degree towards the most helpless and fragile of humans. Derek Kidner says, nothing moves God to punish so much as wanton cruelty towards the helpless. Psalm 68 proclaims, the father of the fatherless and a protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. That's who he is. He's a God of justice and mercy always, all the time, and unchangeably. And he is the God who pours out merciful fatherly love, especially on those who are fatherless. That's what what moves his fatherly heart. He's the one who lavishes in his holiness divine compassion and love and care on widows who have no one else to provide for them, on orphans who have no father or mother, on the most vulnerable and defenseless and needy. Those are the greatest objects of God's own divine, bountiful compassion and care. And so in his image, see, reflecting his divine holiness, reflecting his glory, reflecting his merciful nature and character, we should be like this if we're human at all, towards those who are the most needy among us, the widows, the orphans, the poor, the needy, the weak, the afflicted, the oppressed, the helpless, the fragile. Those ought in our humanness to provoke in us the greatest amount of compassion and tenderness and concern and self-abasing care. And if we can look out upon them with cold hearts of indifference, then we need to take some inventory spiritually and ask, how have we dulled the image of God in our own hearts? Because this is who God is. This is how God is. This is how he's been towards us, right? Towards me. I was desperately needy in my sin. I was spiritually dead. I was cast off from him alienated from him. I was a fatherless one spiritually. 
And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we, his enemies, should now be called children of God. What compassion is that? This is who God is. This is what God does. This is what God has done for us in the self-sacrificing love of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. I'll give his life for you. Would I be cold? Would I be indifferent and uncaring towards anyone out there who is in any kind of need as an image bearer of the most high God? Now, in their sin, so many human beings have so marred and so, so spoiled the image of God in themselves that they wouldn't just be indifferent, they would be thirsty to destroy the most vulnerable of image-bearing life like the Ammonites did for the sake of their own sinful fleshly lusts and desires like the Ammonites did, like our nation still does. We give hearty approval in America to those who would just discard infant life. And finally here, if you combine that most soulless, heartless, callous kind of inhumanity of the Ammonites who would wantonly slaughter the most innocent and helpless and vulnerable, if you combine that with the, with the unrelenting, rock-hard bitterness and hatred that was fostered and harbored and protected for generations in the hearts of the Edomites, if you put all of that together, then what you get is the most incomprehensible, irrational kind of inhumanity, which was the Moabites. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. God is rounding out his divine proclamation of judgment against these Gentile nations. For three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. Graphic again, burned to lime means the, the bones were turned to dust. It takes a lot of heat and a lot of time and a lot of willful hatred. And this is a reference to an incident that's recorded in 2 Kings chapter 3. The, the king of Moab was pinned down with his army by a coalition of enemies that included Israel and Judah and Edom. The king of Moab, he was losing against this coalition. And so he took the king of Edom's son, who had been the heir of the throne to Edom, but who had already been killed in battle. And he sent 700 men to dig him up so that they could put his body up on a wall in front of the Edomites and, and burn it publicly in this display of defiance against his enemies. Just disgusting. No hope of victory. This is just pure, unrestrained, wicked, wretched, vile vengeance and inhumanity, even against the dead, to open a tomb and to defile a body in this way, just to spite your enemy. This is how toxic the poison of inhumanity and hatred can become in the sinful human heart. 
that it wouldn't just treat the defenseless ones without pity, but that it would even treat the dead with contempt and indignity. And God hates it all. From the devaluation of human life of the Syrians and the Philistines to the unfaithfulness and the duplicity of the Phoenicians to the festering bitterness and hatred of the Ammonite or the Edomites to the, to the wanton and unrestrained cruelty of the Ammonites against the most fragile and helpless of human lives to this absolutely irrational and repulsive and unspeakable indignity against human life that is perpetrated by the Moabites. The eternal, holy, almighty God who is the author of all life in his image. The God to whom every image-bearing life is immeasurably precious and valuable hates all of these forms of injustice and inhumanity and he will avenge them all. He did, true to his word here in Amos. He did in ancient days. And he will true to his unchanging nature and holiness all throughout history, even in our day, he will avenge those who do violence against their fellow man in any of these kinds of ways. The issue here is not just these nations' violence against Israel specifically, against the chosen nation of God's people in particular. It is their violence and utter disregard for the inherent dignity and God-given value and intrinsic worth of people in general in, in, in the image of God. And this same God who sat in judgment over these nations here and who pronounced a holy and omniscient verdict and enacted it, this same God sits still on his throne in the heavens and watches and sees with all-knowing eyes, all of this fist-shaking injustice and inhumanity that still goes on all around the world and has for all of history. At the core of it all is exposed here in these opening verses of Amos. Maybe, hopefully, we've seen it already. At the core of it all is this common inner sinful thread of selfish ambition the sin of living for self the sin of self-pleasing when it's all about me and when I'm committed to that sinful ethic that justice is defined that right and wrong are defined that truth is defined primarily by what I want when I'm committed to that kind of ethic it becomes like a spiritual infection that's what spawned all of the wretched disease that Amos is exposing here, right? It all started with self-pleasing. It all started with living for self. That's what gave rise to this unrestrained virulence of all of this inhumanity and injustice, the proud, selfish trampling of others, the willingness to subjugate others, to treat others like dirt and far worse all in order to profit self. When it's unchecked, when it's allowed to fester, when conscience is ignored, when truth is suppressed to the level that it was in the Old Testament times and still is in our time, 
when this kind of self-pleasing sin is, is cultured in the petri dish of human hearts, that's when it starts to infect human societies. And that's when injustice begins to become pandemic and endemic to the point even of the Amazons. And, it, and, it, and it's, we're well on the way here. 21st century America, where we've come to devalue human life so much that we've come to consider the most vulnerable humans as the most expendable. Because we've become so incapable of godly care and compassion and basic humanity. And God was patient with these nations through the third transgression and until the fourth. And then his holy wrath was unleashed. And I, I have no idea why, why he's restraining it now. There's no realistic reason to expect that he's going to have more patience with our own nation. That he has any reason to wait any longer to pronounce divine justice against this country than, than he waited to unleash it against the Syrians and the Philistines and the Phoenicians and the Edomites and Ammonites and Moabites. But he's patient. And he who is the judge of all the earth is also the savior of this whole world. He's coming again in judgment. And every day until he does is that favorable day where men can be called to turn from sin, to repent, to call on the name of Jesus and be saved and given new hearts and new lives and begin the process by the divine power of the Holy Spirit and the living active word of God of having the image of God restored in them and being conformed to the very image of the glory of Jesus, the truest human who ever lived from one level of glory to the next. Do the Old Testament prophets not put a massive definition on human life and on our place in this world and on the meaning of our lives and of history? Let's pray together today that in God's holiness and by His great grace, he will continue to lead us in holiness to see and to hate and to forsake all of the sin that remains in us, all of the selfishness that remains in us, any inhumanity that remains in us, and that he will continue to forge in us a love and a compassion like his own for all of our fellow humans in this world who need to be saved by his grace from their sins. Will you pray with me? Our God and our Father, we almost don't know what to do when we encounter texts like these. You speak with such candor and such sobering power in your diagnosis of the sinful human heart and the way that the sin of the human heart can infect and corrupt whole societies in this world in which we live. Father, we are so grateful that in all of your justice, you will avenge and make right everything that has been done wrong in this world. And we are so grateful, Father, that you are the God of love and patience and grace and mercy, and that the day of salvation 
is every single day until the day of Christ's return. Would you make us faithful, Father, to stand for truth, to stand against injustice, and, Father, to be bold proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere that we go in this world, that men might be saved out of the darkness and be brought into the light of your love and your everlasting life. So, Father, fix our eyes on Jesus, who who became human flesh and lived as the truest man, and who laid down his life for us, and who is our Lord and our King and our Savior and the Lord of all the nations. And, Father, may we live for the sake of his glory and in the power of his might. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.